Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into our passage this morning. Father, we come to you this morning as Dan just prayed with different hopes, different dreams, different disappointments. Uh, Lord, we're all in here this morning uh, seeking for a word from you, a word of encouragement, a word of correction, a word of hope, a true word that will nourish our souls. So Lord, that's what we pray, that you, through your word, through your spirit, through your gospel, nourish our souls this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I wish I was a little bit more certain of it. I'm sure you've said this at some point in your lives, as you were facing some decision that you wish you were a little bit more certain that perhaps you had a few more details, some more information before you actually went ahead with that decision. I wish I was a little bit more certain of it. We walk into so much that is unknown in this life. We walk into different situations, different seasons of life, and wouldn't it be nice if we knew what the outcome would be? Wouldn't it be nice if we knew that all those things that perhaps are causing us to fear or have anxiety would actually not do us any harm? And wouldn't it be nice to know that the things that bring us joy and peace would actually last? We all desire certainty. And I think the, the reason we desire certainty is, is pretty simple. It, it provides a sense of security. We all desire certainty in this life. I'd like to title my sermon this morning, It's a Sure Thing. Because that's what we're all after. The problem is, that is not how life works, is it? I don't know about you, but the older I've gotten, the more I've come to agree with Benjamin Franklin that there's nothing certain in this life except for death and taxes. That is also my shameless plug this week to remind you to do your taxes before the 15th. But there is nothing certain in this life besides death and taxes. And we all know that. We, we know that this world, that this life doesn't offer sure things. And yet we all still desire them, knowing that they can't be found. Life doesn't offer it, but you and I still want it. I think that's true as we try and follow Jesus as well. It, it certainly, as we talked about last week, isn't easy. It, it takes grinding it out to follow Jesus. And in the midst of grinding it out as we follow Jesus, wouldn't it be nice if you were just a little bit more certain about the faith that you've placed in him? Doubts are undoubtedly going to arise as we go through this journey. In fact, you might be here this morning and you feel like your faith has been shaken. You might think that something has entered into your life in a way 
and that causes you to doubt who God is, his goodness, and how he actually feels about you. Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel like you're just wandering in a desert. You're not sure which way to go. You're waiting for some sense of direction. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you have a clear sense of where God is calling you. You have a clear sense of which door you're supposed to walk through. But it's risky. It's unknown. And before you walk through it, you're just waiting to see if God will give you a few more assurances. You might be here this morning, and sin has absolutely run rampant in your life. It is causing absolute havoc in your external world and in your internal world. And it has caused you to doubt how much forgiveness is God really willing to offer. And lastly, you could be here this morning, and you're not even a believer. Somebody brought you. You're trying to understand what it is we believe. And isn't the thing that you're looking for certainty about who Jesus is? Understandably so. If you're going to say, I'm going to commit my life to this Jesus, I want to be certain that I actually know who he is before I do that. Regardless of where you are this morning, deep down, Don't you wish that you had just a little bit more certainty about who Jesus is in this walk of faith? As we look at this final passage in Luke's gospel this morning, I would propose to you that given all the hardships of life, given all the unknowns of this world, given the journey of faith that we're on, if we are to live faithfully, We are going to need certainty. That's Luke's message for us this morning. To live faithfully, you will need certainty. To live a life of faith that is vibrant, to live a life of faith that is rich, to live a life of faith that is marked by security and joy, and to live a life of faith that allows us to enter into those challenges without doubts of rising all the time, We need certainty. We need conviction. We need confidence of who Jesus is and what he is calling us to. One of the things that I've come to really appreciate about Luke, and especially about his gospel, is he is not a cynic. He is one of the few people that does not think having certainty in this world is an absolute absurdity. In fact, if you would, turn with me to the opening of Luke's gospel in chapter 1. I want to put our eyes on this purpose that Luke gives up front of why he's actually writing his gospel. This is Luke 1, starting in verse 1 through verse 4. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word 
have uh, of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, and here it is, the purpose, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke wants to bolster our faith. He, he wants you to read the words that he has penned, and his goal is that it would build pillars that are upholding a strong and certain faith, that they would be pillars of conviction and confidence in who Jesus is so that you can follow him without doubt. So the question then becomes, what are these pillars? What specifically would Luke have you and I be certain of? We're going to see three pillars in our passage that Luke's going to close down his gospel. Here's the three things he's going to leave his reader with that he wants to make sure is ingrained in their souls. Here they are. The resurrection, redemption, and Jesus' reign. The resurrection is verse 36 through 43. Look at it again with me. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of burled fish and he took it and ate before them. So we're kind of jumping into the middle of the scene here. Uh, it starts with this phrase as they were talking about these things. So it, it begs us the question of, okay, well, what are these things that they're talking about? Now, if you're familiar with uh, the earlier part of Luke 24, you would know that it is Easter Sunday. And these two disciples have just been on the Emmaus Road. Now, these two disciples, they don't know who Jesus is. They encounter him. And they are unaware that it is the resurrected Lord. And so they start talking to Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And they're actually telling Jesus about Jesus. They're saying that we had hope in this one who would redeem Israel. But this past Friday, he was killed. We, we thought he was going to be the one that was going to bring restoration. We thought he was the Messiah that was going to fulfill all the promises. We bet it all on him. And now he lies dead in a tomb. Of course, they're saying this to Jesus, who is raised again, and they don't recognize him. It is certainly ironic. But before we're too hard on them, give them high marks for sharing the gospel to somebody. Low marks for not realizing who they're doing it to, but... Jesus then takes these two men and walks them through the Old Testament scriptures. He shows them how everything that transpired leading up to and culminating in his death was exactly how God had planned it to go. And it was not the end of the hope of redeeming Israel. It was actually the fulfillment of it. 
And these two men like that, their eyes are open. They recognize who Jesus is, that he actually is the one who died and has raised again. And they run back to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the disciples. And that is where our story picks up. They've run into the house. They're telling the rest of the disciples, hey, we saw Jesus on the road. We didn't recognize him at first. He started telling us about the Old Testament. And then we recognized who he was. And then the disciples, as they're hearing this news, Jesus just pops in. And they are startled. Understandably so, yet again. Verse 38, why are you troubled, Jesus asks, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? This language is reminiscent of of Mary in the early chapters of the gospel, as all these different events are surrounding the birth of Jesus, and she keeps pondering them in her heart. She's trying to understand and equate who this Jesus is and, and figure out what's going on. And right here, to be clear, the disciples aren't denying the resurrection. It's not like they're dismissing it. It's not like they're totally disbelieving it. But their minds aren't settled on it yet. There's not this deep conviction and confidence in it yet. There's this internal dialogue that's going on in them. Like, what am I actually seeing and and what do I make of it? To put it this way, they're, they're unsure. Are you, or have you ever been, in a spot where you feel unsure about who Jesus is, and specifically about the claim of the resurrection? You have some belief, perhaps. You know it's what the Bible teaches, but there's also that little bit of, yeah, is that, is that actually true? What, what do I make of this audacious claim of the resurrection? There's a lack of certainty, a lack of conviction, a lack of confidence. And again, that's quite understandable. Make no doubt about it, the resurrection is a pretty bold claim. It would be a crazy claim, actually, if it wasn't true. This is actually one of my favorite reasons for believing in the true historical resurrection of Jesus is it would be an absolutely idiotic way to try and start a movement based on that claim. If we were to get together and we were to say, hey, why don't we try and form some new religion, some new movement, we would have a whiteboard of ideas of what it's going to be based on. Nobody would be like, hey, why don't we just claim some dude got up from the dead? People will believe that. It's an absolutely ridiculous claim. Unless it's true. And, and make no mistake about it, if you are here and you say that you believe in Jesus and are a follower of him, this is not just simply a belief of your faith. This is a core foundational pillar. It's not a hypothetical resurrection. It's not a metaphorical resurrection. The claim is a historical one. The claim is so vital that of all the things Luke could have you and I be certain of, of all the different things he could want us to have instilled in our souls, this is one of the top three that he's going to end his gospel with. Make sure that you are certain of the resurrection. 
Paul puts it this way. You don't have to turn there, but this is 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. That's how Paul views the resurrection. It's so essential, so uh, so core to the Christian faith that if it's not true, Paul's like, we are all wasting our time. You guys could be doing something better this morning. We could all be doing something better with our lives if the resurrection is not true. The reason the resurrection is so essential to our faith is it's vindicating who Jesus is. It's vindicating that Jesus is who he said he was, who he claimed to be, that he is God incarnate, Lord and Savior. And if that's the case, if this act of the resurrection is the vindication of Jesus' identity, isn't it something you would like to be certain of? So the question then becomes like, okay, well, I I get the need for certainty of this thing, but how do I get it? I think too often in the church, we tend to brush off our questions and our doubts. We try to ignore them. Uh, We we know not to bring them up in polite company because they might make people uneasy. And we kind of just brush them off, and we hope that magically one morning we'll wake up and we'll find ourselves with this confidence and conviction. I know I've tried that. Like one morning, God will just magically zap me, and that confidence and conviction in the resurrection will be there. We try that, and to no surprise, it doesn't work. It just lingers. But notice Jesus' response to the disciples. Look again at verse 39. He doesn't brush them off. Instead, he actually invites them to come to a closer, take a closer look of the reality of the resurrection. Verse 39, see my hands and my feet. It's me, myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. As the disciples are leaning in to see Jesus, it starts to dawn on them. They start to get this sense like, okay, this, is, this thing is for real. And it says that they disbelieve for joy and marvel. It's like they're so overwhelmed. Their senses are being so overwhelmed by the reality that they're seeing. They're like, we can't believe it. It's too good to be true. And they're, they're moving along in their certainty of this reality. And then Jesus asks for something to eat. As they're progressing in their understanding of who Jesus is, risen from the dead, Jesus is like, hey, by the way, do you have something to eat? It's like, Jesus, read the room. There's a few more pressing matters at hand. We're trying to understand you. What he's doing is he's showing them more evidence of his physical body. He's giving them even more reason to let it sink in that he is indeed standing there before them. Jesus doesn't want you 
standing there in your doubts, looking at him, pondering, is this thing real? Jesus invites you to come take a closer look so you can have all the certainty that you need. The remedy for our uncertainty is not just letting it sit there. The remedy for our uncertainty is leaning in. Get closer. When you have doubts, when you have uncertainties, don't let them just linger, but get closer to this risen Savior. That's my encouragement to you this morning. Specifically with the resurrection, we live in a time that would like to dismiss miracles. And let's not pretend that that we're any different. It it can be hard for us in our modern world to try and reconcile the miracles that the Bible claims, specifically the resurrection. I think sometimes we're, we're tempted to take it as just dogma, of, uh, I kind of believe it just because, like, the church says so. But we don't actually own it, right? We don't actually have that, that conviction and, again, that confidence for us personally. If that's you this morning, my, my challenge to you is to lean in. My challenge to you is not simply take the resurrection for sure, simply because that's the thing that you've been taught all along, and that's the right answer that I know I'm supposed to say on a Sunday morning. My challenge to you is to lean in, get closer to Jesus, and actually build that pillar of confidence in the resurrection for yourself. Now, in doing it for yourself, I don't mean you have to go and do it all alone. I'm sure Dan would love to buy you a cup of coffee. I'm sure different friends, small group leaders, people in this church would love to come along with you in that journey. My encouragement, too, is as you lean in, read the Gospels. Read the book of Acts. See how confident the early church, the apostles, were about the resurrection. Examine the evidence. Look at the the different ways that we can have confidence in the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. If you want to live faithfully in this world, if you want to live faithfully following Jesus, you need certainty about the resurrection. The resurrection is, again, the vindication of who Jesus is and his identity. Don't try to live faith not knowing that is a sure thing. But we move from the resurrection as this first pillar, and then Luke wants to move our attention to, like, okay, if the resurrection is true, what does it mean? What are its implications? And that's where we see this redemption in verse 44 through 49. Jesus is going to turn the disciples' attention, not just from his physical body standing in front of them, but to the purpose of his coming death and resurrection. Look at verse 44 again with me. Then he said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus wants to remove any doubt, any confusion, any wondering about what his death and resurrection accomplished for you and me. And the meaning is very straightforward. Look again if you didn't catch it in verse 47. The forgiveness of sins. This is the redemption that the people of God had been hoping for and waiting for that Jesus would bring prior to his death. The redemption that those two disciples on that road were hoping for. That God would act in a way for the forgiveness of sins for his people. There's to be no doubt about what Jesus' death and resurrection has accomplished for you and for me. It's to be certain in our souls that God actually has provided a way for you and I to live in right relationship with him. That God, in his deep love for you, sent his son to give himself up for you so that you might live with him and he might be with you. This is our firm pillar of the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm sure many of you here this morning believe that, know that. You walked in here this morning and were like, yeah, 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 no, I, I, I know. If, if somebody asked me what did Jesus' death accomplish, I'd be like, forgiveness of sins. Which then has you wondering, like, why am I up here talking about it for so long? Sin has this nasty, nasty way of corroding that pillar, does it not? As sin gets the best of us, it can eat away sometimes at our confidence and our certainty that that forgiveness of sins actually applies to us. The uh, Hebrew word for Satan is literally accuser. This is what the enemy does. He takes our sin and he throws it back in our face. He takes that sin and he's like, see, you're not really forgiven. You're not really restored, not really reconciled, not really saved. I mean, how would God actually love somebody like you? And at what point, like, is it the enemy or is it, like, ourself just feeding ourselves these lies? Who really knows? It doesn't matter. The point is, while we know that our sins are forgiven through the cross of Christ, intellectually, sometimes that pillar is not as strong as we like to think deep down at the core of who we are. I'm sure some of you find yourself there this morning. Whatever it was this week or this morning, but if you had a do-over, you would like to do it again. You would like to do it different. And that guilt and shame has just been hanging over you. And you're here this morning and you're like, oh, man, I hope, hope God's cooled off a little bit. Sometimes we find ourselves there, just unsure, insecure of God's love and forgiveness. Hear this this morning. 
This is how you and I can be certain of God's forgiveness for us. It's not because of what we do. It's not because of the things that we try to do to make ourselves appear like good Christians to ourselves, to others, or to God. It's because we get to look at the cross and the resurrection and realize that the mission of redemption that Jesus set off on, he accomplished. I'm sure some of you remember that famous photo back in 2003 of George Bush on an aircraft carrier, and it said, Mission Accomplished, about the invasion of Iraq. That was in 2003. We were there for another 15 years. Wasn't really mission accomplished, was it? Jesus' death and resurrection is a big sign that says mission accomplished. And it actually is. You and I can be certain that when we put our faith in Christ, even though we do not live perfectly, there is redemption and forgiveness for us. If you're here this morning and, and you don't believe in this Jesus, this is the offer. This is the claim of Christianity that Jesus did live a perfect life, died on a cross, and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. And that to come to faith in him doesn't mean that you have to get your act straight. doesn't mean that you have to live perfectly. It means you have to acknowledge your guilt and see his death in your place for forgiveness of sins. And simply by putting your faith in him, God has washed you clean and brought you back into relationship with him. Again, if you are here this morning and you don't have that faith in Christ and you're curious and want to know more or talk more about it, myself, Pastor Dan, would love to talk to you. The redemption that Jesus set off to accomplish, we can be certain of it. But when we're certain of it, there becomes an implication. Look again at verse 47 and 49. The repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let me put it to you this way. His accomplished mission results in our, going, on, our ongoing commission. When we have accepted this forgiveness for ourselves, the natural implication is that you and I are now a part of a rescue team. That commission is for us as individuals. It's for you as a church. Everything you do is to be with that end goal in mind. And it's not simply so you can grow as a church. It's not simply so whatever your five-year plan is, like you guys can nail that. The idea behind all of this is that people actually come to know this salvation. That's why we're here. We can get caught up on so many other things, both in our own personal lives and our life as a church. At the end of the day, it's about proclaiming the gospel to others. 
And this commission is to shape and direct your lives. I'm sure many of you are here this morning wondering, do I take that job or do I take that job? Do I go to that school or that school? Do I switch careers? Do I marry this person? Do I ask this person out? Do I continue investing in this relationship? Do I break off this relationship? Do I go home for Easter? Do I stay in Milwaukee? All these different decisions of what we're supposed to do and where we're supposed to go. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Wherever you are, whatever people you are with, God has put you there for the proclamation of his name. Now, I'm not saying, like, be that weird Christian and, like, you can't have a normal conversation with somebody without talking about Jesus. I'm not saying be that person who, who always is forcing Jesus into conversations. I'm also willing to bet, and I include myself in this, on the spectrum of, like, talking about Jesus too much or talking about Jesus too little, most of us are going to fall on this end of the spectrum. Most of us tend to shy away. Our problem isn't like, oh, we're forcing Jesus into too many conversations. Most of us, our problem is we're not looking at where God has placed us as a mission field. We're not looking for the opportunities that we legitimately have to bring Jesus into a conversation. This morning I was, I was getting coffee, and it's the local coffee shop that I always go to. The barista is the one that's always there. And she's like, you seem perky this morning, which was surprising because I hadn't had my coffee yet. Um, and she was like, oh, what are you doing today? And I don't usually see her on Sunday mornings. And it was just like, oh, man, like I know what I'm going to go do. But, like, there was that, that little thing where it's like, oh, do I make this awkward? Do I, do I tell her I'm going to church? Do I tell her I'm not going to church? I'm actually preaching at church? We don't have to force it. But we do have to look for it. And when those opportunities do come, because we're certain of this redemption that's actually offered, don't be negligent. Wherever God has you, whatever path you've chosen or has been chosen for you, wherever God's moving you, whatever decision you're facing, take solace in knowing this. God has you right where he wants you to keep proclaiming his name. This is what that pillar of certainty of Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins means for us. It will look different for each of us in our own little spheres, but it's universal if you put your faith in Christ. To live a faith that is secure, to live one that's vibrant, to live one that's full, we want to be certain of the resurrection. We want to be certain of this redemption. And here's how Luke's going to shut it down for us. He wants us to be certain of his reign. Look at verses 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now while he blessed them, he parted from them and, and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. So Luke skips a, a few days here, 
right? We were in the house with the disciples, and, and now it's time uh, for Jesus' ascension a few weeks later. Now, the ascension is, is Jesus going up to heaven, and more so, it is the idea of Jesus sitting on the throne. He, he has now taken his seat and place on that throne. And this is, again, the, the promise that was told at Jesus' birth, that he would be a king who would reign forever and ever, that he would be a king who brings peace and joy and blessing to those under his reign. I mean, did you pick that up as, as we looked at it, this, this continual blessing? It, it seems like something that, you know, we would just pass over, like, oh, yeah, Jesus blessed them. Um, it's not something you often see, though, in the Gospels. And the idea is that God's rule is always a blessing for God's people. As we live under God's rule and live in God's rule, it is actually good for us because his rule brings this security. His rule brings forgiveness and peace. His rule allows us to enjoy right relationships with one another. The thing that I found myself asking, though, about this passage is, is, is why is this so necessary? I mean, again, of, of all the things that Luke could tell us right at the end of the gospel, why this part and how is it necessary for us to be certain of it if we're going to live faithfully? Perhaps it's just being from New Jersey, but I'm kind of a pessimist. It's much easier for me to look at things and say, what's wrong with it? It's much easier for me to just, I don't know, feel down about the direction of everything. To be honest, it's pretty easy for me to be cynical. I don't think I'm alone in this either. I don't know, I think we live in a pretty cynical time and pretty cynical age. And I imagine somewhere... Even if you are Midwestern nice, cynicism reigns. It's easy to be cynical. I mean, that's the problem with it, right? A 12-year-old could tell you what's wrong with something. It's so easy to be cynical. It's so easy to fall into an attitude of despair. With trying not to step into too much hot water, it's an election year. Whatever side you're on, whoo! Just say a lot of despair to be found. We can become cynics. We can be demoralized. And as Christians, we can be just downright miserable people. We lose track of the mission when that happens. We, we lose track of, of, of the people out there and just become inward focused, only concerned about our own needs. Let's not add to all the cynicism. Let's actually be people that are not miserable, but somehow find joy and hope in this life in the midst of a cynical age. And the way we do that is not by just like having these rose-colored glasses of the world around us. No, the world around us is really broken. Heck, you and I, the church, really broken. It's not that we deny reality of the hardships and brokenness and sin and fallenness of this life. 
there's just a greater reality that allows us to find great joy. And that's simply this. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is already on the throne. He's not leaving it. You and I don't have to go through life cynical. We don't have to enter into despair when we see things falling apart because at the end of the day, Jesus is the one sitting on the throne. Jesus is the one who is in control. Jesus is the one who will bring all things to the good of those who love him. And the certainty of Jesus on the throne, it's to sustain us in the midst of a world that feels like it's crumbling in so many ways. I think that that idea of being cynical, noticing despair in ourselves, noticing when we're miserable and unpleasant and irritable, uh, part of it is we're, we're forgetting, we're losing sight of that certainty that Jesus is on the throne. We're, we're allowing the reality of things on, on this plane to actually shape our view of everything that's happening. Did you notice the response that these disciples had after Jesus' blessing? Verse 52, they, they worshipped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Here's what living under the reign of Jesus brings. It always produces true worship and immense joy. Those who have been blessed by their king, bless their king right back. Those who have believed in this good news have great joy. Those who have come to see the one as the king, uh, Jesus as the king who is on the throne, are confident. They're secure. They're not driven to despair in the midst of an uncertain world. Because they're confident that the one who loved them, who is good, actually is in control. Again, in the midst of a cynical age, somehow you and I are to be characterized by joy as individuals and as a church. And as we go about this life, this great commission, not to say that there are not hardships, but we are not to be people that are beaten down. We're not to be those type of people that seem like we're just hanging on. Nor are we to go through life with this bravado that we gotta like beat down all the naysayers and everybody that's on the other side of us politically or religiously or whatever. We, we don't have to be driven by that insecurity because we have this certainty our king reigns. We have certainty that past, present, future, eh, he reigns. Yeah, a lot of stuff can happen this year. I'm sure a lot of it's going to be unpleasant. Again, we don't have to deny that, but we do have to rest in, he reigns. These are the pillars these are the certainties that Luke wants to leave you and I with. The resurrection, redemption, and he does reign. So let me ask you, how are your pillars? What is stable? What perhaps is a little wobbly? What's being chipped away at? My encouragement simply is this, again, lean in. 
acknowledge, recognize perhaps what needs to be bolstered up a little bit. Find those in the church that like, all right, that guy got, he's got it. Let me go talk to him. Let me get some wisdom from him about how he's built his life on these pillars. Lean in and be certain of the resurrection and who Jesus is. Be certain of this redemption that has been accomplished and secured for you. And be certain of his reign. And allow it to produce great joy in you in the midst of a tumultuous, tumultuous world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my German's not that great. He was a German pastor who lived uh, during World War II. Of course, as Hitler and the Nazis rose to power, they were coming down on many Christian churches. And Bonhoeffer and this group of pastors that he was with, they, they had a decision in front of them. And they had to decide, you know, are they going to continue following Jesus as they would? Would they just completely abandon it to keep themselves safe? Or perhaps would they try and just like work with the government, you know, compromise in some places, go along to get along? It was a hard decision in some sense. I mean, I'm sure you are thankful as I am that I don't face that decision. That we don't face the the physical persecution of our lives because of our faith. Wouldn't it be an easy decision? So it turns out for Bonhoeffer and these faithful men, it actually was no decision at all. There was no wondering what they were going to do. There was no flirting with, like, okay, do we just try and compromise a little? None. There was no decision to be made because they had already made it. They were certain about the king. Sure, you can threaten us with death, but we're certain of a resurrection that awaits. Sure, you could throw us in prison. We have this full conviction of the redemption and deliverance we have. Sure, you can use your power and authority to execute us and our families, but we are confident there is a king that reigns and in the end his kingdom will be victorious and none other of course Bonhoeffer and many of these German pastors did give themselves up and die at the hands of the Nazis and while their examples are certainly to be admired by us they're certainly to inspire us that same certainty that allowed them to live faithfully in that time is available to you and I It's not that they had some super power. It's not that they had some secret sauce. They had certainty of who they were following. And that's the invitation this morning. In a world of uncertainty, do not settle for a faith that is. To live faithfully, you're going to need this certainty. And regardless of all the other things that happen in our life, have great confidence deep security on these pillars because the gospel at the end of the day it is the only sure thing that you and I have let's pray Father we thank you for the truth of your son that he did indeed come uh, as a human fully God lived a perfect life died and rose again And that we can have confidence in his resurrection. That we can have confidence in who he is. 
that we can know your love for us and your forgiveness of our sins through his death and resurrection. Lord, I pray for us as individuals, for us as a local church, and for your church as a whole, especially in this upcoming year. Lord, that amidst everything, we won't fall into cynicism, but we will be people of joy, people who act as those who are citizens of a greater kingdom and are confident that you rule and reign in love and goodness. Pray all this in your son's name. Amen.